You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good morning to those of you in Western time zones, and good afternoon to those of you on the East Coast. It's a real pleasure and honor to have my old, old friend, John Rice, joining me today on the Walker webcast. Johnny is the founder and CEO of Management Leadership for Tomorrow. Prior to founding MLT, John worked for the National Basketball Association, where he was the managing director of NBA Japan and director of marketing for Latin America. Prior to the NBA, John worked for Walt Disney, where he was in the strategic planning group. John went to Yale, where he played varsity basketball and to the Harvard Business School. He is married to Andrea Rice, who also went to Yale and then to Stanford. He has a son, Teo, who is playing basketball at Yale and a daughter, Kiki, who has the women's basketball world on pins and needles as she decides where she will take her number two college recruit ranking and play next year. Johnny sits on the boards of trustees of Yale University, Open Door, and Walker and Dunlop. So JR, it's awesome to have you on the webcast again after joining me summer before last. Let's start with a quick speed round. Sure. I need one word answers. Are you ready to go? I can't promise one word, but it'll be tough. Oh, you got to go one word. Here we go. <laughs> All right. So you are Emmett John Rice Jr. Did your parents ever call you Emmett? No. Did you ever win the cup at St. Albans Field Day? Yes. My son Wyatt did too. He wanted me, if you said no, he said, I got to throw in there, dad, that I want it. You were a Latin America studies major at Yale. What was the first country you ever visited in Latin America? Venezuela. Was section D the best section in the HBS class of 1992? By far. That's, I'll call it one word. <laughs> uh, this one is from my wife, Sheila. Have you ever beaten your wife, Andrea, in any racket sport, including whack-a-mole? Yes, and that would be ping pong. Well done. I have yet to do that. Were you in the now somewhat infamous strategic planning group at Disney? No. One word of that group. The based in Orlando. One word to describe former NBA commissioner David Stern. Brilliant. Who's better in hoops, you or President Obama? Me. What's the only publicly traded company to have two Yale board members on its board? That would be Walker and Dunlop. And last but certainly not least, where is your daughter Kiki going to commit? No comment. Stay I, say, I had it here. You can't say no comment. Don't know. That's the truth. In so your, I, I will say she's got she's got you know five great options. She's got it down to five schools that we visited. They include Arizona, UCLA, Stanford, UConn, and Duke. And I think I'm le- we're leaving it to her to make her own decision. We're trying to be good consultants, and I think she's gonna she's gotta figure it out over the next couple of weeks. But they're all you know fantastic options. I would have you know as a you and I were good high school athletes, Willie, and we would have both I think uh, probably you know trade away our families for these types of recruiting options. So I'm letting her you know enjoy this. She's worked hard for it. We'll see where it goes. It's just fantastic. So Johnny, in your sister Susan's book, Tough Love, she dedicates the book to your parents her family, and to you. And in thanks to you, she says, and to my brother, Johnny, 
who has never let me get away with anything. So the question to you is, why are you so good at asking the hard question? You know, Willie, you know, as a consistent viewer of your webcast, I probably should be asking you that question because you, you know, you've, you've become the guru of asking the tough questions and, and especially the questions that people weren't anticipating. Uh, but, I, I, but I'm going to give you a, what's a very personal answer to that question, which is since I was a kid, I was always a believer in the theory that every individual has a unique intellectual or physical gift. And, and a lot of life is trying to figuring out, is really about figuring out what that might be. And I've spent literally decades on that journey to discover what my, you know, unique gift or some people call them genius gifts uh, might be. Uh, I was, you know, I was kind of, I felt I was pretty good at a lot of things, never thought I was great at anything. And so I was passionate about figuring it out. And finally, about 10 years ago, a good friend of mine, somebody you probably know, who a great CEO uh, himself, a guy named Tom Monahan, who used to run the a corporate executive board, now CEO of DeVry University. We were at a YPO sort of forum retreat, and he, he and a few others helped. We're really digging into this issue of genius gifts. And he helped me, he put the, I think he helped me discover what it was. And, and he said, you know, John, I think your genius gift is the ability to see other people's gifts with more clarity than they do and often before they even see them. And as it turns out, I think that's very much aligned, obviously, with the work that I do with you know, my passion and the work that my organization does about coaching people toward their career potential. But with respect to Susan, you know, I, we have a very close relationship and I've always pushed her, I think, probably more than anyone else because I can see, you know, I tend to be able to see her gifts and I will call her out when I feel like she's undershooting. Uh, and then I think, and lastly, in an organizational context, I think, you know, you probably agree that the hardest questions often lie in the intersection of people and strategy, you know, and so if I can read people and see things that others don't, that sometimes enables me to unpack how they approach decisions and, and push them in ways that others may not be able to. So that's my 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 perspective. You know, I don't know if you buy it, but I'll, that that's where I come from on that. Oh, I, I clearly buy it as someone who spent a ton of time in the boardroom with you and watched how you ask questions of me as well as the other members of our management team. And there's no doubt that a lot of those skills have not only been built up by you. I mean, you talked about the comment of Tom in the last 10 years, but you had those skills well before uh, as it relates to asking good questions, um, but also trying to bring the best out of people as far as teams. So your personality is one that is not terribly confrontational, but actually very collaborative. And it makes me go to questioning a little bit on your upbringing and the relationship you had with your grandparents. The, the story of your grandparents is a, on both sides of your family are incredible. But for a moment, I want to focus on the Dixons. And your grandfather immigrated from Jamaica to the United States, I believe, in 1911. And your grandmother joined him soon thereafter. And your grandfather was a cobbler by profession in Jamaica. And when he got to the US, he was injured and therefore couldn't continue forward as a cobbler and became a janitor and built an incredible family in Portland, Maine. And I believe in the 1930 census, there were 250 Black people in the entire state of Maine. And your grandfather and grandmother, Mary, built an incredible family with five kids. And you and Susan used to go up there in the summertime and spend time with them. Talk for a moment about your grandparents and what that was like spending time with them in Maine and some life lessons you learned from them. Yeah, I think my grandparents were special people. And my grandfather, he and my father have always been the people in my life that I've admired the most. The answer to that will kind of, we'll, 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 I'll skip generations to my parents for a second to give some context on this. Uh, as you know, Willie, Susan and I grew up in a broken home. Our parents divorced when we were young. 
They had, they were great people, but had a, you know, never should have been married and were terrible to each other. And over the course of, you know, a breakup and years of custody battles and so forth, you know, there are very few positive things that my, my dad would say about my mom or her family and vice versa. But, but the one that stuck, that stuck out at me, you know, which really put it all in perspective was that my father, okay, would all, you know, the only person that I've ever him refer to as a great man was my grandfather, my mother's father. And that was because he, he appreciated his story, the story you started to tell, immigrating from Jamaica, being told he would get a job as a cobbler, given a name, you know, given somebody's name, you know, never find that guy going back, and find, you know, bring his soon wife over. And with a sixth grade education and no money, figuring out a way, you know, to raise five kids, send his four boys who are older than my mom, the youngest, four boys uh, all to Bowdoin College on full scholarships. And then my mom would have gone to Bowdoin too, but they didn't take women. So sent her to Radcliffe slash Harvard, which wasn't a bad deal for her on a full scholarship. And they, you know, my grandmother was a domestic worker, you know, and turned out they dedicated everything to, you know, um, around the, 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 what I would call the, you know, the, you know, these were people and then my father's side as well, who really set the stage for my parents to achieve the American dream. You know, my grandparents arguably did not fully, but my parents, because of the what my grandparents did for them, actually did. And, and it's a it's a fantastic story on both sides of the family. And my grandfather, when I was seven years old, taught me how to swim in Sebago Lake in, in Maine. I'll never forget those moments. And that guy, you know, he died in 93. He was gardening his, to, the, to the day he died. He, and he just happened to slip down the steps basically. And he would have, you know, otherwise he would have lived, you know, a good life until he was 100 plus but it was a story about resilience and a story about determination and a story about tough love. That guy didn't play around whenever I would, you'd see me talking back to my mom a little bit. He would start to move toward the bathroom and get his razor strap and threaten to, to take me outside. So I never took, you know, I never allowed him to go there, but you know, this is, that's what, that's what we were all about. And that's what it took, I think, to, to do what he did and raise the kind of family he did never owned a car, but somehow I always found a way to focus on the most important things and at least present to me a life that seemed reasonably comfortable. There's something about the long-term view that your grandfather, David, had and your grandmother, Mary, had that I uh, I just want to probe on for a moment. You just set the stage as it relates to how your grandfather came to the United States and, and if you will, what his station in life was at that time. The day your gra- your uncle, Leon, was born... Your grandfather, who didn't have a lot of means, set up a savings account to send him to college. Now, there aren't a lot of people who are struggling to make ends meet who, when they have their first child, go and set up a savings account, thinking forward 18 years that there needs to be money in the bank to send that child to school. And I I guess my question to you is, what was it in your grandparents that made them think so far ahead? Was there something about being immigrants to the country? Was there something about being such a very significant minority in the state of Maine back in the early 1900s that that impacted their kind of long-term view on things? Because as I understand them as people, there is something incredibly noteworthy as it relates to the way they looked at investing in their family and their future. Yeah, well, I I think the best that I understand it is that somehow both my grandparents had what I would call sort of magnetic characters, magnetic personalities. Uh, They were incredibly humble, hardworking, bright, and somehow people just wanted to help them and and get and specifically give them advice. So I think my grandfather in particular was just a fantastic 
acquirer of great advice. And there was somebody who gave him the advice to think, you know, about his kids' futures, you know, in a very long-term way. And something gave him sort of the gumption to believe he could do it. This is somebody, you know, who essentially, when my one of my other uncles passed away at age 35, he'd also gone to Bowdoin. I think the federal government gave us, you know, gave, uh, there was a, you know, maybe ten fifteen thousand $15,000 that the government gave us. And my grandfather, you know, gave that to Bowdoin College and set up a scholarship fund for minority students. I mean, unbelievable. And so there's something there. I mean, you know, one of the, my favorite stories really was that probably well before my mother was even born, but my grandfather, one of his side gigs was tending bar at Bowdoin reunions. Okay. This has had to be in the twenties. Okay. Maybe, teen, you know, and he was, when he was tending a bar, he overheard all these lums coming back. You know, they were, you know, obviously, you know, had, had, a, had a few drinks in them, but they're talking loud and they were saying how great an experience this was. Okay. Looking back and reminiscing, he's like, hmm, you know, I need to learn more about this. I need to send my kids to a place like this. And he did it and he figured it out. So it's just, you know, it's just a quintessential story of, of uh, somebody who had it, it was determined, but also built the kind of relationships somehow at that time with people had very little to, you know, in common with him that ended up giving him great advice and, and he, he was able to follow. I, I believe I'm correct in that your father was made an honorary member of the class of like 1912 at Bowdoin because he was the first person to have had four boys graduate from Bowdoin. And back then, as you said about your grandmother, she couldn't, as your mother, your mother couldn't go there because uh, it was not co-ed until I was surprised by the 19, early 1970s was when Bowdoin actually went co-ed. But um, your, your grandfather also was determined to get your mother into Bowdoin. And he called up the president of Bowdoin and said, I've had four boys who've gone there. You need to take my daughter. And the president of Bowdoin said, we're not ready to take women. So she's going somewhere else. And as you said, she ended up going to Radcliffe Harvard, but it's, there is something just unbelievable about that. And then setting up that, that, that scholarship, let's flip to the other side of the family, Johnny. And your dad grew up, was born in South Carolina and he ended up going to City College and then on to Berkeley to get his PhD. While we're talking about families, one of the things that I found to be so interesting and instrumental is just on both sides of the family, the focus on education. That if you think about where both sides of the family put emphasis, it was really getting good grades and doing very well academically, which would then give you the upward mobility that they were also desiring of. Is that, uh, I mean, on your mother's side, it seemed to be that the two things were education and service, but on your dad's side, it really did seem to be education. There were also a number of pastors and preachers on your father's side of the house. Talk a little bit about your your dad's growing up in South Carolina. Yeah. And it's important. I was kind of just to close on on my mother's family. It's like, you know, so my mother, you talked about service and education. My mother went on to dedicate her career to, to educate higher ed and education policy and was one of the, you know, the architects of, of the initial Pell Grant legislation that's put millions of low-income students into to college over the last many years. And she's often, you know, referred to as the mother of Pell Grant. So this is so so something that my grandparents gave to her, you know, to uh, embedded the importance of, of dedicating her career to helping, you know, other people and especially around education in particular. And on my father, he grew up in the Jim Crow South in the 20s. Okay. You know, if my father, both my parents died in the last 10 years, if my father was alive now, he'd be, you know, uh, you know, 101 or so. And so in the Jim Crow South, there just wasn't everything. The, the prism of life was all around race, really. Okay, what you could and could not do. And he found a way. His father died when he was seven years old. And after a few years after his older brother moved to New York, he moved to New York to, to be with him. That's how he got to City College. And, and, and he just 
I think was on a on a path to to get away from that from the Jim Crow South. And he found his and in between college and going to grad school, you know, there, uh, he served in World War II and you know in, in Tuskegee with the Airmen. And after that, you know, his view was the only way, okay, that I can kind of take my best shot from a you know um, a life and opportunity standpoint was to try to get the best education I could and remove the kind of easy excuses that other people would have to deny him opportunity. And that's what took him out to California, you know, where he where he studied economics and got his PhD. There's a lot in between there. But I think it was really about escaping the tentacles, you know, the vestiges of slavery and Jim Crow in a search for the ability to kind of achieve his dreams. And that's that was sort of his mindset. And part of the path, he's a brilliant guy. And as a and, and the path was to acquire as much knowledge as possible. My father was, you know, the closest thing I've ever met to a Renaissance man. You know, he he knew so much about everything and, and he would always push to, to, you know, if I didn't know the name, you know, if I if I asked him what something meant, he would always tell me, go look it up. You know, go look at it. Always focused on acquiring knowledge and being informed about the world. So when I hear about the Dixons and the Rices and your grandparents who immigrated to the United States versus those who were brought here by slavery. Talk about how their outlook or their views were different given that background. On my mother's side, it's sort of the classic immigrant story. My mom grew up, you know, in Maine, where, as you mentioned, very, very few people of color. So by definition, they had to engage with the only path, okay, to a better life was through white people you know, essentially white institutions or people taking an interest in you. And, and they were great at impressing people and finding opportunity. My father's story is very different. And it, it was really about, you know, growing up only around people of color, only around black people. And because it was the Jim Crow segregated South. And so his path was largely about, you know, trying to find a way to experience a different America. And that wasn't easy. And it was really, you know, all cast in the prism of race and racism. And as you know, he served down in Tuskegee with the airmen. And he would tell me the story that like, after he got out, you know, he, after the, when the war ended, and there were German POWs who were reloaded here to the United States, okay? They would come to where he was, okay? And be able to be served and accepted in restaurants, hotels, everywhere, but he could not be served. And that was just so hard for him to internalize and to process. And I think that's what led him to California, where race was, you know, again, it was obviously important undertone, but, but at Berkeley, that's where he felt a level of, freedom, okay, you know, uh, to engage more around his intellectual pursuits. And uh, he built some very strong friendships. His best friends in life came from the folks who were studying in, you know, graduate school out of Berkeley, and his best years in life were were there. And so the last thing I'll say on this one is, while he was studying and getting his PhD at Berkeley, he did a, I think it was like a Fulbright scholarship. He went over to India for a year. And that was transformational for him because over in India, what he saw was that this race thing, okay, most he, what he realized was most of the world does not view race as the determining factor in what your opportunities are. You know, India had things to do with, with caste and, you know, and religion and other things. What he realized that, you know, the, the aha moment for him was that, you know, race is, a, that's a, you know, this thing that he's been dealing with, that's a, it's a United States thing. It's not the way that most of the world actually operates. And that enabled him to realize that racism is actually not his problem, but it's actually white people's problem, okay? And allowed him to kind of free himself from the shackles of 
uh, uh, believing, okay, that it was his problem and and that he was, you know, uh, inferior in some way. And he would always tell me, you know, say, Johnny, look, you know, one of the most important, most, the most vicious components of racism, okay, is not that, it's not just that white people, make, some white people feel superior to you. It's, it's actually goes deeper than that. It's the, you know, part of the goal is for us to feel inferior to them. And it wasn't until, you know, he, he got over to, to India and then came back, he kind of realized that, that this was all a sham. Okay. And that allowed him to view life a little bit differently going forward. One of the interesting things about that time at Berkeley that I thought was so interesting about your dad was that it wasn't until he lived in international house where he was in with a bunch of international students. And that trip to India obviously had a huge impact on him. But being in the United States, but on the Berkeley campus, living in international house with international students made him feel like he actually was part of a group that was somehow more well-received than, if you will, just being a Black American. And that by being with that international community, people looked at him differently. And he felt for the first time that he could actually, if you will, live in his own skin because he was in that multicultural, multi-ethnic international house and not just in a, you know, having a Black roommate of having to figure out who you would live with when he was at City College or, or everywhere else he'd been in his life. I think it just opened him up in ways, and I think it had some in, influence on him going out and, and you know venturing over to India as well. Uh, but that, all that said, he would tell me stories about how he and his friends they loved jazz. They were some of the major jazz bands would come to you know to Berkeley, and sometimes they would get in to the places they were playing. Sometimes they wouldn't because of him. And when he you know finished his PhD, he was looking for a job. And even back then, this is the 50s now, he applied for a job at the, I think it was the San Francisco Fed. And they said, well, we love your, your background, but can't take you because you're Black. And it was only because of a referral from a fellow PhD student. You know, he got a teaching job, an economics job in the economics department at Cornell University, Willie, in the late 50s. Okay, this is before the civil rights movement. You know, this is, I'm sure that, I, you know, I don't know this fact, but I can't believe that they were other Black faculty members in Ivy League universities at that time. I, I, you know, maybe, maybe not. I haven't done the research. But point is, uh, some uh, faculty member, uh, you know, teed him up and referred him and said, you need to hire this guy. He didn't tell him that my dad was Black. And so they hired him sight unseen. And he gets to Cornell. And they were like, whoa, they were pissed. But they couldn't do anything at, at that point. It was a fascinating, you know, fascinating story. And, and that's how he began his career. So that's really what it took. Yeah. And so to the next generation of your, your mom and your dad, both extremely successful, both of them, your mother working for the college board and serving on multiple corporate boards going forward, your father becoming a, a governor of the Federal Reserve Board and setting all sorts of, if you will, what I would call, it's probably the wrong word, but records in the sense of breaking down racial barriers. Um, as you just said, going to Cornell and teaching at Cornell, I think for seven years, and then continuing to teach and then becoming the first regional manager of a large bank in the Washington area, and then being appointed by President Jimmy Carter to the Federal Reserve Board and being, I believe, only the second Black governor of the Federal Reserve System at that time. There's a quote from your mom that was, never use race as an excuse or an advantage, just best them all. Uh, and your mom and dad clearly lived their professional careers in that and you and your sister, Susan, have both carried that on throughout your careers. What was it in watching your parents in their professional careers that motivated you the most, John, to study as hard as you did, create the career you've created, and then we'll get to MLT in a moment, but then get off the corporate path, if you will, and go back and become the social entrepreneur that you have become? 
two things. I'll talk, mention on my mother's side and my father's side. For my mom, you know, you mentioned that quote, you know, never use race as an excuse or an advantage. She was fiercely competitive, but I think that her, one of her gifts was that, and this had to have something to do with her upbringing in Maine. I don't know what, you know, but it just, she really didn't care what people thought. Okay. And, and that's how she lived her life. And she didn't have the burdens that my father had where he was, he was focused on how he was being perceived and what, what was working against him. And my mom somehow, you know, uh, didn't have that constraint in her mind. Okay. Which is, which, which most people of color do. And the thing that she always, you know, pushed me to do from the beginning was, was to focus on how you can have impact. Right. And I knew I wasn't the most focused person. You know, I think Susan was probably well more focused than I was, you know, in terms of her career aspirations. But I wasn't sure what I want to do. But I did know that I wanted to focus my life at some point on impact relative to other people. My parents, they lived the quintessential American dream. And they put Susan and me in position to focus on most of our energies. Okay. We had some tough times, but most of our energy on developing ourselves to our potential and also figuring out a way to have impact on others. And so it all came full circle after working several years at Disney, becoming executive at the, at the NBA on the side, you know, nights and weekends while I was at the NBA, I was, you know, I was working on this kind of piloting this nonprofit, had a one or two people working on it full time and raise a little money, but I was kind of doing two jobs and look and I knew after a while I knew the potential that it could have and I finally realized I realized that the potential was really a function of my my ability to be to dedicate myself fully to it but my mother told me and she always pushed me and I think this is unique and we've talked you know you may have your own stories about this too is is that she said look Johnny she get you know she, she said if everything fails if you leave the MBA and you go dedicate yourself full time it all fails if you're you know I've recently married if your marriage fails everything fails right? Everything goes wrong. You can always come back home to the, your, the little room in the house that you grew up in, right? And that ain't that bad, right? And so, you know, she gave me an incredible gift by helping me understand that the worst case scenario, you know, the reason you go to all these schools, is you, say you have a backup plan. She helped me understand the backup plan, you know, wasn't that, you know, wasn't that damn bad. And, and that gave me the confidence that I, I, you know, to go out and leave a sexy job to toil in, you know, obscurity for a countless number of years trying to, to build a, a nonprofit organization. And that was really important. And, you know, and my father, on the other hand, I'll just say quickly, he would always encourage me really to take a bold shot at changing the, you know, sort of the circumstance, helping to you know, some impact on the circumstances that black and brown people have in this country from an economic standpoint. He was an economist. And he, he kind of came to the conclusion that the way to move the needle on race and racism had to include, you know, economic levers. He was, he, you know, he kind of, he was a practical guy. And he, he finally said, look, the, he told me, he said, people aren't going to wake up with a completely different mindset from one day, you know, in, in a new day. So what you really have to do is, yes, you have to be the best you can and you have to demonstrate, you know, that you're uh, competence, but you also have to think about, you know, how do you help people of color expand the economic mobility, economic power and influence that ultimately will increase the cost of racist behavior, okay? Not change what people maybe thought, okay, but actually influence their behavior by making it harder for them to take racist actions. And that really stuck with me. And I, I have to agree, I have to admit that that, has had some influence in, in our theory of change at MLT, what we do. And I and, and just ironically, Willie, you know, you know, my the work that we do, you know, kind of working from college to, you know, throughout one's careers is really a, you know, it builds upon my mother's legacy. 
you know, which which was focused on helping low and moderate income students, you know, white and of, of color, you know, uh, get to college and afford a college education. So it's kind of fall, fallen into, you know, it makes some sense. I can't say at all that it was linear, you know, and I was thinking about it that way. But it's, it's, it's interesting to see how things play, you know, in retrospect, how they connect to each other. Your story about your mom saying, if you go out and do it on your own, you always can come back here and have a roof over your head and a, and a warm meal. When I was speaking to a group of MLT, I guess they were both a combination of alums and actual MLTers at the time in New York, probably, gosh, John, this must be five or seven years ago. And um, one of after I spoke, one of the women in the crowd asked me, how is it that you have been such a successful entrepreneur? And I've never thought of myself much as an entrepreneur, as more of just a business manager and leader, if you will. And, and uh, it was an interesting question to me. And, and I kind of paused for a moment. And she said, well, you just told us that you moved to Latin America. You just told us that you launched an airline. Well, you just told us that you moved to London, that you did this, that you did that. You've been very entrepreneurial in your career. How did you have the, the wherewithal to go do that? And I looked at her and I said, and this is in front of 350 MLTers. And I said, I think the reason I did was because my parents told me that if all hell broke loose and I went to Paraguay and lived in Paraguay or in Argentina or in London and I failed, that I could always come home and I was going to have a roof over my head and I was going to have a hot meal. And what was so interesting for me was I looked out at this group and some people in the audience sat there and I could tell that they were like, oh, I've got that. And then there were lots of other people who looked at me with this blank stare of sort of, I don't have that option. I don't have the ability to take those kinds of risks because I'm on my own because I've got to go and I've got to succeed. I've got to make money. I've got student debt. I've got all this other stuff. And obviously I, I played a little bit into what was going through their mind by giving that response. But it was very interesting to me in the sense that parents giving their kids just that core sense that if you go out and fail, you can always come back home. It's such an amazing gift that both you and I got from our parents. People talk about social capital, which is critical relationships, but that's the, you know, I, I like to use the word in the, in the, the importance of that, having that confidence you belong, right? And that's what often white people have in the workplace that, that people of color who are, when they're one of a few, you just don't have. What you're touching based on is something that is also so important, and especially when it comes to risk-taking in one's career as an entrepreneur, social entrepreneur, what have you. If you've never had a sense of a backup plan, if you've never had one, or I should say, you know, having one, you know, and, and seeing it be modeled and being told that is transformational. That's why the kinds of people at MLT that you were speaking to, that's why they should be taking more risk. If you haven't had that, and most of the students that we work with are low, moderate income students, uh, have never don't they've never been told that. And if you tell them that, they will not believe it, okay, because it's never been modeled. That is a huge obstacle to overcome and, and should not be uh, underestimated. So real quick, let me give a, a quick background on, on MLT so that people who are listening understand what MLT is up to. And then I want to dive into real issues that you're working on today, both well before George Floyd's death and murder, and then subsequent to it and how things have changed both pre as well as post. So right now you have about 2,500 fellows per year in your program. You've got about 10,000 rising leaders who are alumni of MLT. You've got 200 corporate partners that are companies like Walker and Dunlop and McKinsey and JP Morgan and a bunch of others that, that both fund MLT and then bring MLTers into their companies 
give them work experience, and then they often will go back to graduate school and then potentially come back to them or go on to other organizations. You've got an annual budget of $60 million of revenues and fundraising, and you've got about 200 staff at MLT. So, John, there's no doubt you and MLT have had a huge impact on this, what I would call cohort of high potential minorities, predominantly Black and Hispanic, and given them mentoring and coaching as they head into the corporate world that will give them the ability to make decisions about whether they want to go back for a graduate degree or continue forward in their career, how to find mentors, how to find resources, and how to feel like they belong and, and have a, a membership into something that is the MLT family. Broaden on what I've just said as a quick summary of what MLT does. Yeah. So, you know, we focus on advancing, you know, racial equity in this country, you know, with two lenses, the one, what you just talked about, which is the individual lens, putting more economic mobility, economic influence in the hands of people of color, helping them go from college to that first job, you know, uh, that closes the deal on economic mobility for them and their families. If you're talking about Pell eligible students, which most of ours are, they're making 50K or below our Folks are 95% of our folks get jobs that average 75K right out of college starting salary. That's immediately game changing. We provide the coaching and the high performance playbook and the and the social capital help them advance key thresholds all the way to the senior executive suite. You know, 10,000 total, about you know, three or four hundred now who are, all, are already senior leaders. And our goal is to you know to have over a thousand senior leaders for high impact organizations and in their communities. On the other side, institutional side of our work. Um, you mentioned work, we work with 200 companies, but the, the goal here, you know, is, is to help organizations take a much more rigorous approach to advancing racial equity, to uh, help them widen the road for people of color, help reduce institutional racism, and to help them move the needle in all aspects of DEI. So we have, as you mentioned, we source top talent for, you know, for 200 organizations, we're, we're, uh, campus lateral, now senior talent. We help organizations retain and advance the talent that they have, sending their mid-career folks to us, okay, for that kind of, you know, the kind of safe place coaching that you only get when you're a senior executive, bring that down to the mid-levels where people need it around key promotion thresholds. We have a whole advisory, you know, the, one of the fastest growing aspects of our work is like a whole, you know, essentially a consulting arm, advisory arm, working with organizations in the C-suite that on the how-to strategies and tactics of getting to a critical mass of diverse talent. And we more recently, just within the last year, launched an offshoot of that really, which is a racial equity certification that establishes an absolute standard for racially equitable workplace practices. So two lenses on our work. And we think that our theory of change is if you put more economic mobility in the hands of people of color, if you decrease institutional racism and make our workplaces more equitable, then that's actually the critical element, going back to what my father said, to address the persistent inequities, you know, racial inequities, in our, not just in our institutions, but in our society more broadly around healthcare, around policing, or, or, or around wealth gaps and so forth. And if you put, if you have more people of color on the same, you know, economic mobility trajectory, if we have, if, if white people are working side by side with people of color in their workplaces, if they see leaders out, you know, uh, that are of color uh, outside of sports entertainment, then that's what actually changes the narrative that white people have about people of color. And that translates into, you know, the white person no longer being scared of the black person walking down the sidewalk in a hoodie coming toward them. Changing, that's how you change the narrative about race. And that's how you also increase the cost of race behavior. So we're really focused, you know, on advancing more racial equity broadly in the United States, but with a very tight focus on the economic level and doing so and with a belief that employers are critically, you know, they're they're the key pathways for all Americans, okay, to achieve the you know the American dream. 
economic, you know, financial stability and, and comfort. And so their organizations like Walker and Dunlop and so many others are really important. We often view, you know, the, it's the government's role or it's the philanthropy sector's role to advance people of color and address racial equity. Well, we believe that employers play a really important role. It's good for business and it's also good for equity. You wrote an article in The Atlantic entitled The Difference Between First-Degree Racism and Third-Degree Racism. Give us a synopsis on what you wrote. My thesis was that there are you know, three degrees of racism, okay? And the most obvious one is like, you know, kind of overtly uh, prejudiced behavior, you know, saying something that's racist, calling the police on a black bird watcher in, you know, New York City, Central Park, that kind of stuff. That's racism in the first degree, okay? Second one, you know, is sort of, you know, is, is about turning one's back on meaningful anti-racism efforts. And that, I call that kind of, you know, again, aiding and abetting, you know, sort of racism in the second degree. A common example of that is just how so many individuals and leaders and institutions demonize Colin Kaepernick, in, you know, for kneeling to protest racist policing. And they tried to, you know, connect him to being disloyal and not patriotic and so forth, had nothing to do with that until George Floyd Moore George Floyd's murder, we didn't really you know, fully appreciate and support that. And so, but, but the third, you know, degree of racism, what I, what, what MLT is really focused on actually is, I would argue, the more pernicious category because it undergirds the everyday Black experience, not just for people who are in poverty and for people who are trying to work their way from poverty to a solid wage job. And it undergirds a Black experience for people who are in high trajectory careers as well. And it's essentially when employers or educational institutions, even government entities, fail to unwind practices that disadvantage people of color in the competition you know, with white people with, uh, for economic and career mobility. And, and I think that what, what I call third-degree racism, essentially involuntary manslaughter, which is, you know, we're not trying to hurt anybody, but we create the conditions where somebody's aspirations, you know, for the future are shattered. And I believe that, you know, eliminating this more nuanced, you know, poorly understood form of racism is the key to expanding economic mobility and power for people of color and to unlocking this opportunity around, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion in our in our institutions. And the last thing on this is that this third degree racism is not something that even the most progressive equity oriented white people are just missing, not for any malicious reasons, but there are just too many poorly informed views that actually lead to the kind of, you know, failing to unwind practices that, um, that will help uh, people of color compete equally in, in our institutions and in society. You know, saying, you know, the, the, for example, because people believe that there is no pipeline of diverse talent, then therefore they don't take a rigorous approach to recruiting talent or in too many situations operating, you know, if there is, as if there is a tension between increasing diversity in an organization and maintaining the excellence-based meritocracy that has made our, many of our great institutions successful. So it's really that the article is trying to hit on this third degree racism and focused on what do we need to begin to do to unpack it. And the thesis is, first, we have to be well-informed, understand it, diagnose it, and realize that it's addressable and actually start taking actions that will move the needle as opposed to the random acts of diversity that aren't really based in a diagnosis of why we are where we are. And here we are 14, 15 months after George Floyd's murder. Have we gone from random acts of diversity into strong institutional, consistent focus on these issues? Or are you seeing some of those immediate efforts that came to the front after George Floyd's murder waning? Well, I'd say, you know, whatever, 15, 16 months after, there has been some progress. 
I can see, I, I do see within our conversations with companies, the momentum waning a bit. But let me step back and say, you know, that there was a fundamental shift, okay, in the entire dialogue around race in our institutions in particular that happened, you know, and as you know, so many, after George Floyd's murder, so many organizations put out very strong and compelling statements standing against racism in our communities and in our organizations in all forms. And it was actually the response, okay, that people of color and, and so many of our institutions had to that, those statements, well-intentioned, powerful statements that actually has led to the very forward-leaning kind of actions and a higher level of rigor and discipline and urgency around moving the needle on racial equity. What happened was, you know, people of color stood up and said, hey, we appreciate those statements, but our lived experience within our organization actually is fundamentally inconsistent with what we're saying externally in our values relative to race. And that was an aha moment for CEOs and senior executives where they realized that what they had thought, okay, what they was you know, a little different than was actually playing out, meaning that they realized that if there's racism inside our organizations, okay, people feel that, then, and we're actually saying we stand against racism, then if leadership doesn't move the needle on racial equity within our stations, then we're standing on the wrong side of race. Then we can legitimately be called racist. And so that's unacceptable. That elevates it to an enterprise risk level. And that's where you saw a lot of movement. And so what I've been very excited about, Willie, is a level of urgency around moving the needle, trying to, you know, with a lot of organizations saying we need to you know, kind of move from a let's do better than last year level of rigor with respect to our approach to moving the needle to an approach that actually applies the same level of business rigor that we assume and, you know, apply to every other part of our business and the accountability that comes with that. The challenge there is that there are too, there, you know, there are too many companies that right now and too many leaders that actually still believe that this is a moral equity issue. This is about the right thing to do, okay? As opposed to, a, you know, taking a business equity mindset, which is let's understand what, you know, why we are where we are, why are our own staff and their white colleagues raise those issues around the lived experience. Let's figure out what we need to do to move the needle, and let's and let's approach it with the same level, of, you know, kind of stra uh, strategic and tactical rigor that we do everything else. And we've tried to, you know, at MLT, really tried to help to catalyze, a, you know, a, a flight to rigor, both with our advisory work that we do one-off with organizations on, um, like any other consulting firm, but also with a racial equity certification that we launched uh, about a year ago called Black Equity at Work, which we'll be adding Latinx equity work down the road, actually next year. The point around Black Equity at Work, which we can dive into if you like, is really to establish for the first time an absolute standard for what good looks like with respect to racially equitable workplaces uh, akin to the lead standard for, you know in environmental sustainability space and it's really about trying to move the space from a kind of a good intentions but a lack of rigor to uh, you know to a comprehensive approach to move the needle holding ourselves accountable in the process and one of the things that we feel was really important you know, given where the world, you know, where, where leaders and organizations are, they're struggling to figure out what to do, how to do. And so we said, essentially, let's create an on-ramp that every organization, okay, regardless of where you are in the journey, okay, whether you have zero diversity or you're, you know, you're, you know, you're making a lot of progress, create an on-ramp for every organization, which is, you know, to developing a rigorous plan. Okay, and then and we would help them with that plan, but that plan would be approved based on rigor alone, not where you are, and then giving uh, organizations 
three years to make progress against that plan toward a level of certification built around a rubric that we we designed in conjunction with the Boston Consulting Group and a number of other firms that really cuts across people, purchasing, suppliers, so forth, and philanthropy. So very comprehensive rubric, but really focused on providing that support and calling organizations in, not calling them out, supporting their approach. And you know, scores are confidential, collaboration, bring our insight so that they can actually move the needle, okay, in a comprehensive way. As you and I have discussed before, I think what you just said is so fundamentally important to this issue of calling organizations in rather than calling organizations out. I think that as you and I have discussed previously, issues of race are so sensitive, they are so charged that there is a, a sense that those who have momentum towards it or are having progress or have been focusing on these issues pre-George Floyd, this has been a great opportunity for companies to lean in on it. And if you're like Walker and Dunlop that have been working on these issues ahead of George Floyd, we just did more and we leaned in more and we created more specific plans and we've been running with it. But if I want you to talk company, about that, really, not to interrupt you. I do want you to talk about it. I mean, the, okay. I was going to say the, the context here is like, like we've got, you know, Walker Dunlop is one of 50 great companies that have uh, signed up, you know, committed employers that uh, just in the first year. And these are organizations who are not far from where they want to be on racial equity, but are demonstrating their leadership in terms of commitment to rigor. You know, people in the healthcare space like DaVita and, and Abbott and the media entertainment, you know, space, Warner Media, Vox Media, you know, Viacom, private, you know, sort of finance players, Bank Capital, BlackRock, State Street, so forth, you know, major consumer brands, Target, uh, Starbucks, Nike, place, you know, Peloton, one of your favorite brands, and the NBA, you know, law firms and, and even consulting firms like Deloitte and BCG. The point here is that you all, okay, as one of our NAR employers, has also been, you know, uh, also one of the employers that has gotten there to finish their their plan, got it, gotten to that plan approved stage. But you've also taken it farther at Walker and Dunlop. And I think it is important as it relates to help people understand what you're doing, because it's not just instructive, really. I think it's it's groundbreaking with respect to public disclosure of your efforts and plans. So to say uh, our efforts and plans as a director. I know as, as a board member, I guess you're on it. But uh, there are just a couple of quick things that I would say, because I was I was going to get to okay. you all calling people in and not calling people out is hugely important. Because as I was, I was going to say, those companies that had momentum towards these issues, but maybe not doing enough, which we clearly weren't, but we had real efforts on it. This was the opportunity to lead in. A lot of other companies that were not moving down the right path at first sort of felt like they had to say something. And then all of a sudden said, uh-oh, we're not good on these issues. So maybe I just continue to ignore them rather than focusing on them. And I think that this certification that you're putting out there gives companies the opportunity to create a baseline to say, we're either good, bad, or indifferent on these issues, but we need to be better. And we need to get a baseline like we all do in all aspects of our business. So to your question really quickly on WD, we, first of all, I've yet to hear someone say that there is another company that's done this. I'm waiting for someone to say, ah, you're not the only one, but we did publish in our 2020 proxy, which came out in 2021, our d goals for 2025. And so we have very explicit goals on diversity and inclusion that we are driving towards between now and 2025 that are in our proxy statement. And my compensation and the compensation of other senior executives at Walker and Dunlop is based upon achieving those DEI objectives. So let me take it down one level from that, because publishing in the proxy was, I would say, innovative and also very much tells the world what we're up to and holds our feet to the fire over the next five years. But we hired 220 people at Walker and Dunlop during the pandemic. 220 people from March of 2020 to March of 2021. And I sat down with our head of HR and looked at the stats on what we were doing from a diversity standpoint, and we failed. 
So here we were putting in our proxy statement, this is where we got to go. But from our hiring of 220 people, we did not meet the gender or ethnic diversity, racial diversity issues that we wanted. And so what we then said was, hold on a second, how do we measure financial results? Well, we do a monthly financial review. We do a quarterly financial review. Um, we also have KPIs from an operational standpoint that we looked at, we always look at in that financial review. And so now a third element of our monthly finance review and operational review is a diversity and inclusion review. And so now when we just got done with our review of our September numbers, we go finance, we go ops, and then we go diversity and inclusion. And so we're reporting out on a monthly basis of what we're doing from a hiring standpoint to meet those 2025 goals. And it's interesting because I've had plenty of white males at Walker and Dunlop come up to me and say, is there opportunity at Walker and Dunlop for white males? And if you think about our top 20 wage earners at Walker and Dunlop, top 20 wage earners, 91% male, so only 9% female, and 94% white, so 6% diverse. And we're trying to drive both of those to 15 and 15 by 2025. And guess what? Every white male who's in our top 20% wants to stay in our top 20%. So we as a company have to do things to invest in women and minorities to give them the opportunity to get into that top cohort. And so unless we're mindful about it, unless we have a big goal that's a 2025 goal, and unless we're doing things daily, monthly, quarterly, yearly, we're never going to get there. And so one of the things that I would just conclude on this, John, is that having you on our board, having the insight that I've gotten from knowing everything you're doing at MLT having gotten out there and put out some really ambitious goals on this, even with all of that, without tracking it on a monthly basis, we weren't delivering on what we wanted to do. I had everyone in the company, including my board of directors, bought in on this. But until you institutionalize it, implement it every single day, track it, track it, track it, like we do EBITDA margins, like we do sales, like we do client coverage, all of those things, it doesn't get done. And I would just back up to your previous comment, which is that I've been running Walker and Dunlop for 17 years. These issues have always been important to me. 17 years later, we are not nearly as diverse a company as I would have liked us to have been today. And that's not because I didn't have desire or a good heart in this space. It was because we didn't implement it in building our company like we implemented revenue growth and net income growth. And so now it is part of our business practices. And I have no doubt we had an ERG meeting a couple of weeks ago, and a number of our minority employees asked Howard Smith, our president, what happens when we don't meet those goals? And Howard looked at him and goes, you haven't been around Walker Knob long enough because we don't establish goals and not meet them. And so we'll hit those goals, but it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take day-to-day -day management of it. You sit on the number one insight that, uh, from an institutional standpoint that I've gained over the last 20 years building MLT, okay, which is living and breathing example that... that if only when you apply the same level of rigor to move the needle on DEI that you require in every other part of your business, does it actually happen, right? And it forces the conversations and changes behaviors, you know, so that we approach it with the same level of rigor, right? That, that's all we're, That's all anybody is asking, okay? And when you do apply the same level of rigor, then that, you know, we know there, there are going to be setbacks. You're, we all have them. Well, uh, but when you do actually apply the structure and the, and the rigor, people have trust that you're taking it seriously. And that gives you the ability to make mistakes and not lose trust. And, and, uh, and I think that's, if there's one message I could give to folks who are running organizations out there, that's what it would be. Well, on that, because I just looked at my watch and realized you and I have run over. Johnny, A, thank you for all you've done for WD. B, thank you for establishing MLT and all you are doing for those people who benefit from MLT. And uh, 
thanks for the friendship over so many years. I look forward to seeing you next week at our board meeting. To everyone who joined us today, thank you. Great discussion. And uh, we'll be back next week with another Walker webcast. Thanks, Johnny. Thank you.